Eco Report is a weekly public affairs program providing independent media coverage of environmental and ecological studies with a focus on local, state, and regional people, issues, and events in order to foster open discussion of human relationships with nature and the earth and to encourage you to take personal responsibility for living sustainably in the world. Eco Report is produced by an independent team of volunteers working at the studios of Community Radio WFHB in Bloomington, Indiana. And financially supported by listeners like you. Hello, and welcome to Eco Report for WFHB. I'm Juliana Daly. And I'm Cynthia Roberts. On today's Eco Report, environmental correspondent Zero Rose brings us part two of his discussion with Sam Carpenter on bills opposed and backed by the Hoosier Environmental Council in the 2024 legislative session. And now for your environmental reports. The olive tree, according to Greek mythology, was created by Athena, the goddess of wisdom, as a gift to the people of her namesake city, Athens. Olives and olive oil have become synonymous with Greece and are credited in part with fueling the rise of Greek civilization. But despite a history spanning thousands of years, these culinary pillars of Greek identity are under threat. Small farmers expect this year's harvest season, which got underway in November, to be one of the worst years on record thanks to climate change and the irregular seasonal shifts it has wrought upon the flowering process and fruit development. We are collecting olives much earlier than ever before. Our producers do not recall any year like this, says Michael Antonopoulos, president of the Agricultural Cooperative of Kalamata. I think we will see less and less olive trees, not only in our region, but all the Mediterranean, because the Africa heat line is moving forward to Europe. Greek growers are having to patrol their trees during harvest because of high levels of poaching. Spain has been blighted by a long-running drought caused by record high temperatures in 2022 and 2023 and almost three, three years of reduced rainfall. Throughout the country, reservoirs have been depleted. The worst effective areas, they are less um, than 20% of their capacity. The Mediterranean basin responsible for about 95% of global olive production was particularly impacted by both record heat and extreme weather events, with temperatures in Italy reaching 48.2 Celsius and record high temperatures reported in Tunisia, 49, Morocco, 50.4, and Algeria, 49.2. Furthermore, torrential rainfall resulted in flooding and damage to olive groves in Greece, Turkey, and Libya, which also suffered a heavy loss of life. This year's record temperatures may also impact olive oil production in the 2024-25 crop year, with glaciers in the European Alps experiencing an extreme melt from which they are unlikely to recover in winter. Melting snowpack from the Alps in the spring is one of the sources of water upon which northern Italy and French olive growers rely, especially as spring seasons become hotter and drier. The U.S. produces less than 1% of the world's olives. The major producer is Spain, followed by Italy and Greece. California is the only important olive-growing state in the U.S. 
California olive production is mostly in the San Joaquin and Sacramento Valleys, although some acreage is reported throughout California. All agree we cannot return to the climate of the 20th century, but we must act now to limit the risk of an increasingly inhospitable climate in this and the coming centuries. Roundup, the most popular and profitable weed killer ever sold, uses glyphosate as its most active ingredient. Glyphosate is toxic to most broadleaf plants and grasses. It kills most plants it comes into contact with instead of targeting certain weeds or plants. Monsanto, a now-defunct company, developed the product. Because glyphosate kills anything it touches, Monsanto developed plant seeds that were genetically modified to resist the damage of Roundup. This is when residential Roundup cells skyrocketed. However, as the years went on, science questioned the safety of glyphosate. Studies have shown that the chemical might cause illness to humans and cause damage to the environment. The International Agency for Research on Cancer categorizes glyphosate as possibly carcinogenic to humans. Essentially, the IARC is saying this toxin may cause cancer. In 2018, Roundup was purchased by Bayer. By then, consumers had filed thousands of lawsuits linking Roundup to cancer. The most common cancer associated with Roundup is non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. Bayer committed to begin in 2023 replacing its glyphosate-based products in the U.S. residential lawn and garden market with new formulations that rely on alternative active ingredients. Given the extreme cold this past January, we checked to see if wind turbines are working. International design standards actually require that wind turbines can work at temperatures down to minus 4 Fahrenheit. Turbines engineered for cold climates using technologies like cold-resistant steel and heaters to warm them can work at temperatures down to minus 22 degrees Fahrenheit. Below that, there is some danger of blades becoming brittle and shattering. Even in a place like Alberta, Canada, the turbines operate most of the time during the winter. It's a miracle. Paoli Peaks is celebrating 45 years in business. At the beginning, a fair amount of natural snowfall brought in skiers. Also at the beginning, natural snowfall in that zip code was around 25 inches. Now that area receives an average of 12 inches. The opening date for skiing has depended on the snow gods and has varied widely. Early on, the closing date was late March. Now nearly year now, nearly every year shows a closing a few days earlier. Now closing is more likely mid-February. One thing is certain, there will come a year not far in the future when there is no skiing at Paoli. The global, the global temperature is guaranteed to rise another 3 to 5 degrees Fahrenheit because our country is exporting more fossil fuel than ever. Other countries, such as China, continue to build coal-fired power plants at a furious pace. Enjoy it when you can, because soon there will be only water skiing around Paoli. And now part two of environmental considerations in the current legislative session at the state capitol with Zero Rose and the Hoosier Environmental Council's Sam Carpenter. The full four-part interview will be available online after the show as an ERX Echo Report Extra to be found at WFHB.org. You know, water issues is... Uh... Is, is a lot of what uh, you guys are dealing with right now. And another one that relates to that that you guys oppose is uh, 1399 
uh, about PFAS, and apparently it wants to limit the definition of uh, these forever chemicals. Yeah, and the concerns about the PFAS is one is they're they're everywhere. Um, they're in our um, nonstick kind of. They have a nonstick quality because they are these very um, tightly bound molecules that um, hold together so tightly they they don't really degrade over time. Uh, but they've been used in like nonstick cookware. They've been used on liners of uh, pizza boxes. They've been used in our clothing. Um, that kind of waxy material. If you uh, buy uh, you know cat or dog food. And that type of old kind of paper waxy bag has PFAS. Um, and uh, so there's um, there was a bill last year that required reporting on um, like blood tests on uh, firefighters that are exposed to PFAS through firefighting foam and uh, firefighting gear into monitoring monitoring their health. Um, and that was an acknowledgement that, that PFAS are harmful. Um, they do have detrimental health effects. Um, and that went through um, with a bipartisan support. Um, now, kind of as a result of that, um, getting ahead of any future potential regulation, um, this bill has attempted to limit the parameters or the definition of what PFAS material can be regulated, even though there is no state regulation of PFAS. They're saying, well, if there were a regulation, we want to limit it to this very narrow definition. Um, so it's kind of, uh, it's it's trying to get ahead of a potential um, limitation of accountability for these toxic materials that are going into our waterway um, and into our bloodstream. The, the, the reason they're called forever chemicals is because they don't break down. And so even though you might get very small exposure, over time they accumulate and they build up in your body and that's when you start having these negative health impacts. So the Environmental uh, Protection Agency, EPA, is looking at federal regulation of PFAS. Um, and so that's where, you know, if if we put state uh, limits on regulation, uh, that will be um, outweighed by the federal. So um, this is kind of a silly bill because it's, we don't even have state regulation and they're trying to limit the regulation. Uh, we are opposed to it, uh, but it does seem to be moving forward. Yeah, my uh, dear friend actually that I took care of in home hospice was in his early 80s, and he passed from metastatic, metastatic renal uh, cancer, and kidney cancer is one of the things that's associated with the PFAS. Mm. It's not, not an abstract issue to some of us out here. No, no, I'm sorry uh, to hear that. What's, an, what's the um, next bill that you would like to focus on there's just a few that you're pro that are positive ones another see opposition one is to do with the uh bobcat hunting 
Yeah. So, yeah, um, this is kind of a a case of the uh, what we see is the Indiana General Assembly overreach in terms of telling um, uh, governmental agencies what to do. So they are the department Department of Natural Resources has the ability to create a bobcat uh, hunting season uh, to take bobcat. Uh, in Indiana, uh, if they deem that they are not endangered. Uh, bobcats were once an endangered species in Indiana, um, but there's no, been no real scientific uh, survey or study of their, um, you know, their numbers now in different parts of Indiana. There's only been, uh, you know, sightings that people have reported, um, and they're using that to base the uh assumption that um, bobcats are no longer endangered. Um, so we do oppose this uh, legislation, and we think that um, the General Assembly should not be dictating to the DNR that they need to create a hunting season for bobcat. Uh, the DNR has that ability to make that decision based on uh, doing a more thorough and scientific study of bobcat numbers. Um, and so why then uh, tell them they have to do that by July 2025, 20, uh, which is, I believe, the uh, the date. Um, so that's a, uh, that is another piece of legislation that we're opposed to. Okay, the House Bill 1165, a regulatory sandbox. Yeah. Um, so this is a, uh, allows for consideration of bypassing health and environmental regulation, um, in some instances for new business development, development. So, um, for communities, um, I mean, this could be seen as an environmental justice issue for communities that have received the brunt of bad, um, environmental policy and decision-making um, that have had the high concentrations of different contaminants, um, air quality uh, issues. Um, here is a bill that offers a way for businesses to bypass health and environmental concerns. Um, so yeah, we're in opposition to that. Um, one, unfortunately, a theme within the Indiana General Assembly is to uh, remove the um, expertise um, that's within the agencies uh, of IDEM, of uh, Indiana Department of Environmental Management, uh, DNR, um, other agencies, uh, the Office of the Chemist, um, to remove the ability for them to use their expertise to create rules and guidelines. Um, and kind of handicap them doing that. Another bill that does that is Senate Bill 297. Um, this is a rulemaking bill that would require that uh, agency rules that would have a fiscal impact of a million dollars or more first be approved by the Indiana, Indiana General Assembly. So uh, telling the agency, no, you can't make a rule um, uh, related to your expertise, uh, related to the legislation that we've passed. Um, if it's going to have 
this fiscal impact, um, then first the Indiana General Assembly has to approve it. Now, I don't know about you, but I would rather have uh, people with trained professional expertise making decisions about uh, rules and regulations rather than our politicians who have to deal with, you know, a thousand different bills in a session. Um, they don't have the expertise to make those determinations. Um, that's why we have government agencies. So this bill uh, would, again, put a, a limit. This is similar to uh, a bill last year that uh, removed the ability of the Office of the Chemist to make determinations about pesticides. Um, instead, the General Assembly wanted to uh, approve uh, new pesticides coming onto the market or, or disapprove. Um, so this is a, a theme that uh, is, continues on within the Indiana General Assembly. Uh, there's a couple more that I'd like to talk about, if I can. Sure. Um, one is um, a bill, it's called uh, HB 1193. This is a bill that Representative Hamilton put forward uh, to support uh, the development of community solar in Indiana. Unfortunately, this bill has not progressed. Uh, looks like it's not going to receive a committee hearing and uh, therefore uh, has died in the House. Um, but community solar is an opportunity for Hoosiers to benefit from clean renewable energy um, with a lot of the barriers taken away. So those barriers could be the upfront cost of buying solar panels and putting them on your home. That could be a uh, $15,000, $20,000 investment. Uh, that's not uh, available. Uh, that's not an available option to a lot of uh, Hoosiers. Um, another uh, barrier is uh, you might have a home that doesn't have a good roof for solar. You might have live surrounded by trees. Um, you might have a, a a roof like mine that it's just an odd roof and it doesn't work very well. Um, or you might live in an apartment and you don't own a home. Um, so community solar um, is a way for you to benefit from renewable energy. And those benefits are, one, uh, it's affordable. Uh, people who subscribe to a community solar plan typically will get 10 to 20% savings on their utility bills, on their electric bills. Um, there's no upfront cost to sign on. The um, other thing is that you get a, a clean power source in your community. And so you're not having the, you know, detrimental impacts of coal burning or fossil fuel generation um, on the uh, pollutants that they put in the air and our water and into our atmosphere. Um, so you have a clean source in your community. Uh, you have the investment that goes right into your community. Um, and that uh, smaller scale uh, solar development up to five megawatts um, gets connected to the local um, distribution grid. Any sort of connection that needs to be made or any sort of upgrades that need to happen to enable that are paid by the developer. Uh, that means uh, utility rate uh, payers are not paying for that expense. They're not uh, covering 
uh, that expense. Um, so there's uh, upgrades that come to the distribution grid. And with the increased local power generation um, that goes to the homes in that surrounding and businesses in that surrounding area, there's not as much need for the transmission grid. So the transmission grid is a grid that, uh, you know, moves our electrons um, hundreds of miles at times to get to where it's the, where the need is. Um, that's to uh, pay for upgrades to those transmission um, systems is very expensive. It's costly and it, it can take uh, many years for that to happen. Um, the more power we can generate locally, um, the less transmission upgrades that we're going to need. So there's so many benefits um, with community solar. So if it's so good, then why why don't we have it? Um, the reason is is because it it requires participation, cooperation with the investor-owned utilities that uh, dominate power generation in Indiana. Um, you can't have a community solar program if you don't have ready access to customer bills um, so that you can provide a credit on those bills for the power that they um, get credit for through the community solar um, facility. So we need legislation that uh, enables or requires the commitment from the utilities to participate in these programs. Um, the uh, utilities see this as a potential, you know, taking away their market share. Um, and so th they have not enabled it. It's the same in every other state. Um, it only happens if there is uh, legislation that enables it. Uh, fortunately, uh, community solar is something that's growing around the country. Um, we're seeing even our neighbor in Ohio um, with community solar legislation that seems to be moving forward. Uh, Wisconsin, um, Illinois has a strong community solar uh, program, Minnesota. Um, so hopefully we'll see progress with community solar. Uh, Hoosier Environmental Council is part of a coalition uh, called the uh, Hoosiers for Community Solar. Um, and are, we're active participants in that and want to see um, bipartisan legislation, uh, you know, put forward in a future year to uh, get this moving forward. This is In Nature. This is Juliana Daly with In Nature. Today, I am talking to you about red knots. Red knots are an unusual bird not normally found in Indiana. The red knot, or just knot, is a medium-sized shorebird, which breeds in tundra and the Arctic in far north of Canada, Europe, and Russia. It is a large member of the sandpiper family. They are plump, neatly proportioned sandpipers that in summer sport brilliant terracotta orange underparts and intricate gold, buff, rufous, and black upperparts. This species occurs on all continents except Antarctica and migrates exceptionally long distances. Red knots from North America have declined sharply in recent decades due in part to unsustainable harvest of horseshoe crab eggs 
and they have become a flagship species for shorebird conservation in the 21st century. Look for red knots on sandy beaches and mudflats. Surprisingly, red knots have been seen in Indiana along the Eagle Creek Park as it migrated to South America. When red knots eat mollusks, they swallow the shells whole and crush them up in the muscular part of their stomachs, known as the gizzard. With climate change, Indiana will possibly have more red knots migrating along our lakes and rivers, especially if we are able to clean our rivers and lakes so the clams and mussels return. Keep looking for the red knot. You've been listening to In Nature, a production of WFHB in Bloomington, Indiana. For Eco Report, I am Juliana Daly. And I am Cynthia Roberts. Are you looking for a way to make a difference on environmental issues? Here at Eco Report, we are currently looking for reporters, engineers, and segment producers. Our goal is to report facts on how we're all affected by global climate disruption and the ongoing assaults on our air, land, and water. We also celebrate ecologists, tree huggers, soil builders, and an assortment of champions who actively protect and restore our natural world, particularly those who are active in South Central Indiana. All levels of experience and all ages are welcome, and we provide the training you'll need. WFHB also offers internships. To volunteer for Eco Report, give us a call at 812-323-1200 or email us at earth at wfhb.org. And now for some upcoming events. Take the Donaldson Cave Hike at Spring Mill State Park on Saturday, February 10th from 2 to 3 p.m., Meet at the Donaldson Cave parking lot. Discover more interesting facts about George Donaldson, an eccentric Scotsman, and his contributions to Spring Mill State Park. The Whooper Wednesdays will continue at Ghost Pond Fish and Wildlife Area until February the 21st. Come to the Visitor Center on Wednesday, February the 14th, that's Valentine's Day, at 9 a.m. to walk the property and see if you can spot some of the residents, including the endangered whooping crane. Make sure to dress for the weather. Take a tea blending for winter wellness class at the Allison Jukebox Community Center on Thursday, February 15th from 6 to 8 p.m. Learn to blend your own herbal tea to help support your immune system. Learn how to identify trees in the winter during a Buds and Barks Winter Tree ID hike at Oakhart Park in Bloomington on Saturday, February the 17th from 2 to 4 p.m. You will be outside taking a close look at the bark, branches, and buds to see, seek out the tree identification, dress for the weather. The Brown County State Park Winter Hike Series continues with a 10 o'clock line Nature Preserve Hike on Saturday, February 17th from 10 a.m. to noon. This is a 2.5-mile moderate hike along a fire trail and horse trail. The 10 o'clock line Nature Preserve is the largest nature preserve in the state and has a very unique story. Please dress for the weather. And that wraps up our show for this week. 
Eco Report is brought to you in part by MPI Solar, a Bloomington business specializing in solar hot water, solar electricity, and solar hot air systems. MPI Solar designs and installs solar power generation systems that encourage independence and individual responsibility. Found locally at 812-334-4003 and on the web at mpisolarenergy.com. This week's headlines were written by Norm Holy. Today's news feature was produced by Zero Rose and edited by Cade Young. Juliana Daly assembled the script, which was edited by the Eco Report team. Juliana Daly compiled, compiled our events calendar. Cade Young and Noel Herhusky Snyder produced today's show. Brandon Blewett is our engineer. For WFHB, I'm Juliana Daly. And I am Cynthia Roberts. And this is Eco Report. Thank you for listening and have a wonderful Valentine's Day. You've been listening to The Eco Report. A volunteer-powered production of Community Radio WFHB. In Bloomington, Indiana. Available for download and podcast at news.wfhb.org. Eco Report is your independent, ecologically inspired news source. For South Central Indiana. Bringing you news that the earth wants you to hear. Send your comments, suggestions, and story ideas directly to the Eco Report staff. The email address is earth at wfhb.org. That's earth at wfhb.org.